As I was thinking about this topic, maybe the last time that I was up here for a Wednesday night series, I was substituting for, for Wes during one of his classes, uh, but the last time I was up here for a Wednesday night series, it was The Meekness of Paul. And I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to pick another Wednesday night series where I ended up having to make a bunch of confessions up here, so we'll see how that goes tonight. Maybe not so well. But I don't know if some of you remember if you were back here, and I think it may have been 2013, 2014 time frame. And James was bringing a series to us from Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 on the fruits of the Spirit. And he challenged us to grab a marker and go down to the children's education wing and to write on the glass of that building the uh, fruit that we felt like we were called uh, to work on the most, where we had the most investment to make, where we felt challenged the most. And I went down there and was thinking about what that might be from that list that he had talked about that morning. And I have no idea exactly why it was, but I picked up that marker and I put joy on the window. And it would turn out that over the next six years, I discovered why I wrote that word on the window that night, that day. And part of it is because, and we're talking about this, this series, is renewing our strength, the notion that there, there's something that, that we need to renew, something that needs strengthened. And I felt like at the time that was something that probably needed to be renewed or strengthened in my life. And so if that's true, it means that there's something that we're working on that it has been reduced. There's something that maybe is not at its former strength. And that could be the case for some of us here tonight. In fact, perhaps over the last 18 months or so, uh, you may have experienced some things that could have had an impact on things that need renewal. And so I'm really happy for this series this summer that we can talk about various things that might deserve to be renewed, that might need to be focus areas for each of us, because as you know, we've been through a lot over the past 18 months. Maybe you have felt like this gentleman that's on the slide from time to time uh, over the past 18 months, you know, where uh, things were just incredibly difficult. For me, the last 18 months has been kind of a mixed bag. Uh, a lot of things that were very challenging, a lot of blessings too. Uh, and it's actually easy to count our, my blessings. Uh, Crystal and I talk often about the fact that for us, the last 18 months has been a joy in so many ways. Uh, the fact that I was working from home most of the time and still continue to work from home a lot opened up an opportunity for us to be together in ways that we never had during my whole career, where I could step out of the home office and grab a cup of coffee and sit on the patio for 15 minutes or have lunch together or grab a quick kiss in the afternoon. Just things that were just not possible before when I was heading off to work for too many hours every day. And there were other things, too, that brought us closer together. There were worship services on our patio where all of our children were there and were singing and worshiping together uh, with Wes, and he was uh, speaking to us through the camera. And there were things that were blessings, but there were also things that were very challenging. And there may have been days where I felt like this guy right here. But I also have to recognize that there's a difference between happiness and joy. And you may have heard that sort of, sort of technical description before, that happiness is an emotion that you feel and joy is a state that you're in. And when you're pursuing happiness, which is a valid pursuit, in fact, it's something that's actually guaranteed in our Declaration of Independence. The founders indicated that we have certain inalienable rights that are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We could probably talk about the scriptural basis for those rights as they're identified. 
And I would say that we all have the right to pursue happiness, but pursuing it is one thing and attaining it is another. Happiness is that feeling that comes from the enjoyment of life at the moment, right? And since it is an emotion, since it is a feeling, it's something that comes and goes. And sometimes we may not feel like we always have control over the emotions that we have, and sometimes we, we don't. And sometimes those can be impacted by things that are going on around us, things that are said to us, things that happen in our life. And the difference between joy and happiness is joy is possible when sometimes happiness is not. It's possible to be that guy that was on the steps and be unhappy about what's going on in life and still have joy within you. It's not automatic, though. And maybe we could sum it up by saying joy is actually something that you are, not something that you feel. It's a state of being. And if we're thinking about what might impact our joy, what is it that, that might cause us to feel like we have to renew it, to strengthen it? We might think of things that impact our joy that are external, that are outside of us, like a pandemic. But we also might think about things that come from within. And so tonight, we're going to start first and, and frankly not spend much time on the things that are external, but I did want to spend just a little bit of time there because it's important. And we'll first go to Lamentations chapter 3. And Lamentations isn't a book that you think about uh, connected to joy. In fact, it is the opposite of joy. Uh, the, the name of the book would indicate that it's not really joyful because Jeremiah is writing a lament about the fact that his beloved Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians, even though he has spent his entire career predicting that very thing. But he certainly is not gloating over the fact that that's occurred. He's sorrowful that that's occurred. And it's interesting that if you actually do a search of, uh, within the Bible of the two words, joy and happiness, you do joy first, and you're going to find a long list of references if you look at rejoice and joy, joyful, those things. But if you look at happy and happiness, there's very few references to that. You're not going to find happiness in the Bible that often. But here's one place that you will. So in Lamentations chapter 3, this scripture says, and this is just how Lamentations goes, he said, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and he's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. But then just a couple of verses later, you get this. In spite of the fact that this happiness is not there, you get this next passage. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, Therefore, I will hope in him. That message of hope is so important, and it connects with some of the passages that we can think about with regard to joy in our life, even in spite of or despite what's going on around us. And I'm sure some of the things that pop to mind as you think about joy in spite of what's going on uh, are Romans chapter 5 and maybe James chapter 1. We'll go to Romans chapter 5 first and look at that. And Tim, you're going to have to click because there's animations that didn't come across on the Apple. So if you don't mind, go ahead and hit the space bar. Romans chapter 5, you're, you're probably familiar. It talks about joy twice in this passage. It also talks about hope. It's hope are the bookends for this passage. It starts out with hope and it ends with hope. 
And it's this challenging passage that you've probably read in the past and you thought, how do I deal with that? How do I come to grips with what Paul is saying here? That joy is possible uh, even amidst suffering for a Christian. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This passage tells us that suffering actually has a benefit. The benefits that we're intended to receive in our suffering are endurance, patience. It builds character, and we don't often like character-building experiences because they often come the hard way, but that's what we can obtain from this. And then, of course, the ultimate is a renewed hope. It starts out with hope and ends with hope. And then, of course, James chapter 1, the next passage, which gets to the point you know, much more directly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the rewards from suffering with joy are a steadfast faith. And, of course, you all know, uh, if you sang the Bible school song with our kids, that joy is one of the distinctive traits of a Christian from Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There it is, number two on the list, joy. And I don't know if this list is any kind of priority order, but surely love would be the first, right? Joy deserves to be the second on the list. So your joy can be challenged by external things. There's no doubt. Pandemics, sickness, suffering, wars, trials of various sorts, job issues, relationship problems, those things can all assail you and affect your joy. And they certainly can affect your happiness. But I think, and what I would like to propose to you tonight, is that Far more threatening to our joy are things that come from within. Things that happen within my head. Now, I don't know if you ever felt like this guy before, either hypothetically or really, when you look in the mirror, you say, I don't know what's going on inside that head. Sometimes maybe I don't even recognize myself. And maybe sometimes we are our own worst enemies, and we are the source of the threat to our joy. And if we go back to Lamentations, we're going to see that happiness and joy are both mentioned in Lamentations. But the happiness, the threat to happiness in Lamentations came from the persecution that they faced, the destruction that they were encountering. And Jeremiah gets right to the point at the very end of Lamentations, and this is what he says. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
Sin is the ultimate threat to our joy. The thing that we allow in our head, the thoughts that we allow to occur, how we allow the things that happen to us to affect our attitude and the way that we act within our relationships, within this this world that we live in, the way that we testify to our faith. In my opinion, those are the things that are more threatening, and those are the things we're going to spend time talking about the rest of this lesson. Romans chapter 14 talks about what the kingdom is. Romans chapter 14 said, The kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom's all about. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit. You'll notice the dot, dot, dot right there because I chopped a little piece of that scripture out because it also says what the kingdom of God is not. It says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This passage is in the middle of a part of Romans chapter 14 where Paul is talking about our behavior, the way that we act in this Christian life. And he's talking about that there are two sides of this behavioral coin. There's one side that says, I know the things that I can do. I know the things I'm supposed to do. I know the things I have the liberty to do. But there's also recognizing that I know the things that can cause me to stumble or to cause somebody else to stumble. And within that context, Paul's saying, look, it isn't really about the behavior. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. But behavior still matters. This is the passage. We're not going to read all of that. But there are a couple things. First off, he's talking about what's clean and unclean. And that if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And it says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's strong language. If you destroy the one for whom Christ died, you're surely going to destroy their joy. And then he goes on to say right after that, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So here's the thing that you're allowed to do, but you shouldn't do because it's going to affect somebody else. And there's this tension that Paul's talking about. And then he ends it up by saying, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So what gets in the way of mutual upbuilding? And in this passage, it's choices about how we live. And where does pride and where does guilt get in the way? of upbuilding and joy and peace and righteousness in the Spirit. Because guilt and pride, the sins that they are, are incompatible with joy, and they'll destroy the work of God. And so here's the confession part. For all of you that are type A driven, achieving kind of people like me, This kind of challenge can be difficult when you're talking about what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. And I so appreciate Scott's lesson last Wednesday where he was talking about our walk and renewing our walk. For some of us, it doesn't feel like a walk. It feels like a sprint or like driving down the superhighway. And there's all of these things that we feel like we need to do that we're called to do and we feel like that we're we're challenged to do. And often the the road is twisty and it has turns and and corners in it. And it can be challenging and disorienting. 
This particular uh, picture is a picture of the hi highway to Hana on the island of Maui. So I've been on it many times. And my solid recommendation to you is that you do not rent a, an extended version of the Suburban and drive on that particular highway. Because I've done that. Not a lot of fun. That has a lot of twists and turns in it. And if you click one more time, there's a part of the Hana Highway that has a vehicle down in the ditch. And if you drive that highway today, I'll guarantee you it's still there. It's been there for like 15 years. And I think the highway department leaves it there on purpose. Because it's sobering when you drive around that bend and you see the car actually down there at the bottom of that gulch. I actually think somebody just kind of pushed it over there. But getting the straight story is impossible. And I think they, they let it live on in mythology just to serve a purpose. And the purpose is to say, this highway is dangerous. There are ditches on both sides. And you have to be careful. And if you're driving a big old suburban, you can often have a ditch on both sides at the same time. And that's kind of true of life, isn't it? That you're driving down the highway of life and there are ditches on both sides. And those ditches can take many forms, but in this particular analogy, one ditch is pride and the other ditch is guilt. Guilt, when my behavior doesn't measure up to the standard that I have for myself or the standard that I see in Scripture. Guilt for when I just don't perform like I think I should perform. And then the opposite extreme, pride when my, measure, when my behavior does measure up and then I take credit in my heart. There's a concept that I've uh, used in the past. I call it merit badge Christianity. You might recognize this picture. It's a picture of an Eagle Scout that's got his merit badge sash and it's full. It's as full as it could possibly be. I guess this guy earned every merit badge that's available uh, in the Boy Scouts. I have a Boy Scout. He's an Eagle Scout. I'm really proud of him. He has a merit badge. Maybe not quite that full, but he got every one he had to get. One of them at the very, very last moment, the day before he turned 18, and was able to become an Eagle Scout. So I traveled that journey with him. But merit badges are not part of Christianity. If you're a type A person and you're driven to attain you might be thinking from time to time that the things that you're doing, called to do, the, the works that God's appointed you to do, might be merit badges going on a merit badge sash. And you're chalking up rewards or points. And isn't that what life teaches us so much right now, is that the things that we do get us points and they get us rewards and we got to tap into the loyalty program and the more things that we do, the more that we're going to gather those points but it's a dangerous, dangerous thing, especially if you're a type A driven, attainment-oriented person. And so you look at a couple of scriptures like Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, and, and this talks about works that are done, and it talks about the attitude that we should have, and it starts out where, where Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I know in my heart as a Christian that I was prepared for good works of joy. This next passage from Philippians chapter 2. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I heard that scripture a lot when I was a kid. Just the last part. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's intimidating. What does that even mean, fear and trembling? I didn't often hear the second part of that. That verse is two-part. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, I know in my heart that I'm powered by God for good works of joy. But I'll tell you in my youth, I heard a lot more about work out your salvation than I heard about God works in you. And maybe some in this audience had that experience as well. Maybe you heard a lot more about working it out in fear and trembling than you did about being empowered to do those things than you heard about those things being prepared in advance for you to do. And those were often reinforced by scriptures such as the series I'm going to show you right now, starting in Luke 12, 48. Once again, this is the last half of the scripture that's often quoted in just this way. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. And, and that's kind of a scary verse just by itself. It's true, by the way. To whom those much is given, much is actually expected. But if you actually expand this verse and you look at the whole context, it's part of a much scarier passage. Jesus is talking in a parable here about uh, servants in a master's household who were entrusted with the household. And the master went away. And when he came back, if he came back at the late hour and found some of the servants sleeping and a thief had entered in, then... He was going to hold the servants accountable for the fact that the thief got in the house and stole the goods. And then it says that if the thief didn't, or if the servant didn't know any better, if the servant had fallen asleep, then they were going to be held less accountable to the servant that knew better and should have been watching out for the thief because they knew the hour that the thief was going to come and they were going to be held accountable even more. Yikes. And then this starts in verse 32, which we don't often... I hear that, this part of the passage, because this is the start to the parable. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that parable probably makes you think of some other parables, like the ones in Matthew chapter 25. And that's where we're going to end tonight, is Matthew 25. Because I always heard the Matthew 25 taught and preached about this, what's it going to be like on Judgment Day? When it all comes down to how you settle out and how things are going to be decided, that here's what it's going to look like. And in Matthew 25, there are two parables and an application. The first parable is the parable of the ten maids or the ten virgins. I don't see uh, Mike and Cindy Trantham here, but I can't talk about this parable without having a smile on my face. Inside story. But 
you've got this first parable, right? And it talks about the fact that the bridegroom is away, he's coming in for the wedding. You've got these people, these uh, ten or half of them do not. The bridegroom is delayed. He shows up. The five that don't have oil scramble out to go find some. The five that have the extra oil are prepared and ready. And, of course, the ones that are not prepared, that haven't done the right work, they're, they're judged, right? But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Scary stuff. And then the way that Matthew 25 ends up is with the application. And it's the application of sheep and goats. And it says Jesus is going to gather everybody together and he's going to separate you and is going to decide who are the sheep and who are the goats. And this is a time when you definitely want to be a sheep. You don't want to be the goat. And there's no goat merit badge. Maybe just sheep merit badges. And if you read the passage, the way that Jesus decides whether you're a sheep or a goat is how you've treated the people around you. Did you treat people with respect? Did you feed those that are hungry? Did you take care of the widows? Did you take care of the orphans? And Jesus said to the extent that you're doing those things in your life, you're actually taking care of me that you ministered to me. He said, I don't even know you goats. And some of them said, well, how can you not know me? I've loved you. You're my savior. And he said, because you didn't do these things. And they said, when did we ever have a chance to do those things for you? And he said, if you did them for the least, then you did them for me. And then there's this parable in the middle. The parable of the ten virgins, the application about sheep and goats, and you don't want to be a goat, you want to be a sheep. And it's the, the parable about the three servants, right? The parable of the talents. Do you know the story? The story says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And then it says this about one of the servants. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Sounds bad. Here's what happened. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you had scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who is for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's really uplifting, isn't it? But I'll tell you, that's what I remember so much, is lesson after lesson talking about what it looks like to be a wicked, slothful, lazy servant. Look what it says about the, the five-talent servant. He who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with them, 
and he made five talents more, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. What's the reward for the two servants that were faithful? Investment merit badges? Well, the reward here says they're going to get more assignments, that they're going to get more. But here's the aha moment. Here's the thing that I missed for so long that I finally discovered in this passage, stumbled onto it. This master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will sell you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward. Enter into the joy of your master. It's not merit badges, not loyalty points. It's not the the doing or the not doing. It's in the trying and the joy of the master. You see, the master empowers me to do the work. He provided the resources as a deposit. He gives me the Holy Spirit. He created the works in advance. He does all the work. He works within me for his glory. So there's no guilt, no try-fail, no pride if achieved. The big reward for my work, even if it's just a feeble attempt, even if it's a failure, is to simply bask in the glory and joy of the master. You see that road I was talking about, that crash scene, that ditch, whichever ditch it is, whichever ditch that you feel like you're in, feeling guilty about the things that you haven't accomplished, things that you bypassed, the things that maybe you were felt called to do, or you're in the other ditch and you're feeling the sense of self-worth and pride that comes from having done something either way, You can be saved from the ditch. You can stay up on the high road because the high road is basking in the joy of the master. The point of the highway to Hana is not the drive. I mean, if you're in a Corvette, it would be an exhilarating drive, but in a suburban, it's really a pain. But the point of the highway to Hana is to see that. It's to enjoy the beautiful waterfall that's at the end of the road. It's to enjoy all of the waterfalls you see along the way. It's to enjoy the time spent with family and the joy that comes with that. Basking in the joy of the master is what our experience is going to be when we're living with him for eternity in heaven. And we have the opportunity to have that right here. All we have to do is wake up in the morning, step into the kingdom, take on our assignment, do our best, and regardless of what happens, just bask in the joy of the master. Get used to it. That's the way it's going to be in heaven.